You can turn your Bibles uh, to Isaiah chapter 28. Um, we're, uh, this is our, how do I say this, our last big section, or our biggest section. Um, we're going through 28 all the way through 33, and um, uh, you, might, you might get done and go, oh, Greg, you should have split that into two, but, but it's really one unit. I, I, I didn't want to split it. So I want to hopefully help you kind of wrap your mind around what's coming. So uh, okay, so chapters 28 and 29, what, what we see are uh, foolish leaders, uh, this multitude of enemies coming against Israel, and the false counsel, the lie that there is no hope in God. Okay, that's, that's what's going on in chapters 28 and 29. Then 30, 31, there's this proposed solution by the leaders of Israel uh, that, that they just need to depend on Egypt, this, this mighty nation, to defend them. Um, and then we see the foolishness of that plan. Assyria is, is going to attack them, so they're, they're trying to make an alliance to, to, to save them, right? Um, and then 32 and 33 uh, is, is the true solution, the, the, the good solution, the real solution. It's the revelation. We'll see the revelation of this king and his presence that, that God is is sending. Um, and, and as you know, if you've been with us in Isaiah, we've, we've come up upon all, all these woes uh, against Israel. And as we talked in our preaching meeting a couple weeks ago, uh, we kind of broke down three reasons for these woes that we see uh, in these passages. One is pride and arrogance. And, and we've seen that over and over again uh, in Israel and the nations, but we see that today. The second is rejecting the message of the Lord, not, not, not listening to, not hearing his word and obeying it. Um, and then the third is trusting in hum, human power and not in the Lord. So if you have your Bibles, let's jump r- right into 28.1. It says, Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. Uh, and I don't know if you've picked this up yet, but God hates pride. Uh, how many nations just in Isaiah have we seen fall because of pride? Our pride is a much, much bigger deal than we realize, than we, than we recognize, pardon me. Uh, if you were to comb through uh, all of these chapters, all six chapters today, you would see uh, pictures of, of pride and arrogance all over the place. They're overconfident, which leads them to complacency. Uh, the leaders think that their plans and their alliances uh, that they're making will save them. They don't think that God, the creator, really knows what he is doing. So continue on in verse 1. The fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has, uh, sorry, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong. So this is referring to Assyria, sent to judge, sent to discipline God's people. Uh, It says, uh, they'll be like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He cast down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will uh, be trodden underfoot, and the fading, the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like the first ripe fig before summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. Verse 5, in that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back 
uh, the battle at the gate, right? So we see these woes, this judgment is coming, and yet there's still hope. There is this remnant. It is bad for God's people. They will uh, endure suffering, but there will be a remnant that God will save. God is faithful. Then we come to this imagery of uh, like, you know, like this, this, this party, right? This big uh, feast, and clearly there's a ton of alcohol being consumed at this party in verse 7. It says, these also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink, right? The, the leaders of Israel, uh, it says, they're swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. And you might have missed this in verse 7 like I did probably the first 10 to 15 times I read it. Isaiah says they'll be swallowed by the wine. All right? It's our nature to think that we have things under control. Right? With wine, you're the one that swallows it. But in our pursuit of greater satisfaction, what we believed that we ruled over is actually ruling us. We dip our toes into sin. We do some mental and moral gymnastics to find a loophole to justify that, that it's okay for me this time to go this far, but it doesn't take long, take long to realize that, that we're so much deeper into sin than we thought. Like this verse says, it isn't us who've swallowed sin, but it's sin that swallowed us, and it happens before we know it. Verse 8 uh, goes on to, to talk about this table, right? And I'm sure at the beginning of the night at this party, maybe this table was decorated beautifully, but the description now is it's covered in nasty vomit, right? There, there's, not, there's not a square inch of this table that's not covered. And this is the state of God's people, right? It, it is not going well. And then the, the drunkards lash out at the prophet in the following verses. They're convinced that they don't need correction and how easily this can become our mindset when we've justified our sin, right? We're not open to God's correction. We're not open to God's people pointing out our blind spots. The, the drunks lash out at Isaiah. They say, we're old enough, right? We're not like little children that need to be told what to do. But the irony is they're more childish than children, the reality is that the more we need correction, the less we think we need it. Do not underestimate the power of sin to blind you. God's people would be disciplined, right? If they won't listen to God, they're going to hear a foreign tongue oppressing them. Verse 12 gives a pretty simple, uh, pretty simple message. Rest in the Creator. Rest in him, not in creation. Don't trust in anything else. Come to God, but they wouldn't hear. So Isaiah then mocks the rulers. In verse 14, he calls their alliances like a covenant with death. And then at the end of verse 15, he says, they've made lies their refuge. They've taken shelter in falsehood. And I wonder, is it possible that this is you? Over and over again, Isaiah talks about the blindness of of God's people. Scripture talks about spiritual blindness uh, many, many times. Right? The, the, you can't see, and you, and you really don't even have a clue what you can't see. So you make lies your refuge and your shelter, and, and, and this is where we see pride gets in our way. And there's this barrier between you and God. You think you've got it all figured out, 
So, so you put God at a distance, you stiff arm him. Do you have the humility to come before God and ask him to open your eyes, right? To come to God and say, I need you to show me what is true. Show me how to live. Show me every lie that I believe. This is the humility required in following Christ. No matter how long you've been following Christ, this is what this is the posture we need before the Lord. 28.16 says, uh, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm the one who's laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And, and, and maybe you're thinking, I've heard this verse before. I mean, we've already heard Isaiah talk about a stone, a stone of offense, a stone that, that, that people stumble over. Like, no, I've, I've heard this. I've read this before. Well, both Paul and Peter quote this verse. You know how critical the foundation is for a building. And unlike the foundation that the leaders of Israel have laid, God says, I'm laying a sure foundation. Right? This is what... This is what is worthy of building your life upon. The, the leaders of Israel laid a foundation made of, of, of shoddy material, right? Of, uh, of chasing after false gods, uh, of hoping that, that if they make the right connection, they have the right alliance with, with a nation that's powerful enough that they will be saved from their enemies. This verse uh, probably takes some of you back to where we were in Sermon on the Mount. Right? Jesus closes the sermon with this picture of two builders. One builder builds his house uh, upon the sand, and the other builder builds his house uh, on, on a foundation of rock. And, and the, the storm comes, the winds, the rain, the floods, and the foundation uh, of sand, that house, it, it falls. It's destroyed. But the, the house built on the rock, it stands. So the question for Israel, the question for us today is what is our foundation? Is it the foundation laid by God? Will you build your life upon God or are you gonna build it on, on plans that you find and, and, and philosophies and uh, your own schemes? Verse 17, he goes on, he says, now will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Justice and righteous are, are the standards of measurement, he's saying, right? He, he, the, the plumb line, it's checking to see that the, that the wall is built right, that it's, 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 uh, it's built correctly straight up and down, unlike the, the false hopes and the lies of the leaders, right? The walls that they build, they will not be able to stand for long because it's built on what's crooked. It's built on what is false. Maybe, maybe it'll stand for a time, but it will come crashing down. So is, is your life built on the foundation that God has laid, or is it some other foundation? Do you trust your foundation? Uh, think about that condo in Florida that, that tragically fell down, and, and then you hear more and more that there are massive questions about the, the structural integrity of this building. When we build upon a foundation that, that isn't God, that isn't Christ, it will fall eventually. It will, there will be destruction. So as we've been going through Isaiah for weeks and weeks now, we've, we've read about Israel's uh, continuous refusal to look to God, to trust in God. 
Right? We've read oracle after oracle, and, and I hope that as we've been reading, that, that you've picked up that God is judging his people, but it's in his judgment, in his discipline, that he's working to save his people. I know as a reader, by this point, I'm just kind of shocked that, that God continues to pursue them. He continues to work to save his people. Isaiah describes this work uh, here as a strange and alien work, this foreign work. Right? It, isn't what, it isn't the way that you would expect God to save. And throughout, God asks his people, listen, listen to me. I actually trust the, the message of the Lord. Well, 29 begins with a, another oracle, and, and we find out that God says he's, he's going to send an attacker. They're, they're going to set up around you, and, and they're going to attack, and this is God's doing. But, but then in 5 and 6, it gets strange. Uh, verse 5 says, But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff, right? These foreign foes have no substance to them. They're like dust. They're like chaff. Nothing compared to what we'll see of the Lord. These enemies who will oppress them are, are nothing compared to the Lord of armies. Then the end of verse 5, it says, And in an instant, suddenly, you'll be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder, with an earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of devouring fire, right? This picture is scary, Suddenly, it says God's there. But what we find out is he's not fighting against them. He's fighting to save them. And so he tells them this judgment's coming. He, not only could he save them before that, but he, he can save them after they've experienced the discipline of the Lord, right? The consequences of their refusal to trust him. And then uh, Isaiah describes this, the, 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 the attacking nation, right? This, this world power, it's going to be like a dream, but this powerful nation coming against you will seem scary. It will feel scary. It will seem insurmountable. But like a dream, it will fade. It will be nothing, right? In a dream, things seem so real. If you know me, I have very vivid, very strange dreams. Uh, a couple of years ago, I had a dream that I was staying at a, at a hotel, and I went out to go get something from my car, and there I see a two-time NBA MVP, Steph Curry, and he's popped open uh, uh, my car, attached jumper cable so that he could jump his car, and I walk up both starstruck and befuddled, and, and before I can say anything, Steph Curry says to me, you and me, we're the same, man, and then fist bumps me. <laughs> And in the moment, it all felt so real. And then I woke up the next morning, and I'm still a 5'10 white dude who can't shoot or dribble with his left hand. So we are not real, or we're not the same, Steph Curry. Um, but the, for Israel, right, this big, scary oppressor, right, truly a world power in Assyria, it, it will be like a dream. Why? Because God is going to rescue them. Right? God is going to fight for them. Put your hope in God. Right? This is what Isaiah keeps calling us to. Put your hope in God. Turn to the one who fights for you. But verse 13 says, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. This sums up their problem. They go through the motions of worshiping God. They call themselves God's people. They, they say the right words, 
right? They're, they're even physically probably like doing the, the right looking acts, but their hearts are far from God. These are people that would show up to church every Sunday. They, they, go, to, they go to Bible study. They, they serve, right? They pray before meals. And yet, he says, they don't fear the Lord. Whatever fear of the Lord they have, it's just a commandment. Someone told them to do it. Their religion is just this list of do's and don'ts. And, and how easy is it for following Christ to become that way? You're nowhere near, your heart is nowhere near Christ. Maybe at one time it was, or, or maybe, maybe it never was. Right? Maybe you just came into a church and you, and you looked around and figured out how it goes and you started playing the part. You say the right words most of the time. Externally, your behaviors look righteous, but in your heart, there's no love for God. There, there's no awe of God. You don't fear him the way scripture teaches. Verse 14 says, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, wonder upon wonder, right? Miraculous is what this means, like, like supernatural things, not, not wonderful like, man, you're going to love this, but, but God's doing a, a amazing things. And these are scary things. He says, the wisdom of wise men shall perish, the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Verse 15 Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turned things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing made should say of its maker, he didn't make me, or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. This might be the best picture of their arrogance and their ignorance. Imagine for a moment that, that clay, like shaped into a bowl or a vase or something, uh, could, could turn to its maker and, and say, you didn't make me. Right? That'd be shocking, obviously, but laughable. Or, or, or to say, no, you don't know what it's like to be clay. You have no understanding. But this is what we do with God. Right? We think that we know what's good, that we know what's best, we think we know the, the, the best plans for our lives, the best way to live our lives. We think that, that we know better than our creator, our maker. And we certainly can't say to God that you don't know what it's like to be human. No, actually, he knows better than we do. We could argue that, that Jesus is more fully human than we are because he knows what it's like to be human without sin, without giving in to temptation. So in verse 15, they say, who, who sees us? Who knows us? The Lord knows. Right? The author of Hebrew makes that clear. Nothing is hidden from his sight. He knows everything about you. Right? All the stuff that you're so glad people in your life don't know about you, the things maybe that you've done or said or thought in secret. And yet God still wants us. Again, Isaiah speaks of the blindness of the people. It's the leaders that suppose that if they're hidden somewhere deep enough, far away enough, God won't know what their plans are, that they'll be hidden from their sight. We can't hide our ways from God. Humanity has been trying to hide from God ever since Adam and Eve tried to hide. And there's great irony in saying that he has no understanding. It shows that actually we do not understand who God is. We don't get that he is the being that we were created to know and be known by, that knowing and loving God is what fulfills our deepest longings. Right? Every longing we have ultimately points to Jesus, 
Israel's leaders didn't believe that God could save them. So they pursued other options that were powerless to save them. It was just dead end after dead end. Each one led to consequences of pain and suffering. And yet the prophet continues to give hope that there will be some who put their hope in God, that they will not always be ashamed, that instead of defiling God's name, they'll honor his name as it should be honored. Chapter 30, verse 1. It says, ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation, God's, God's people had already been forbidden from making alliances with other nations rather than trusting in the Lord. This happens back in Exodus, happens in Deuteronomy. Israel, you would think that they would remember how God has fought for his people over and over again, defeating their enemies in, in miraculous ways, right? Ways that... that that demonstrated to them, hey, this wasn't because Israel, you're so mighty or, or because you have this, this brilliant military strategy. No, this is clearly the hand of the Lord fighting for his people. But instead, they're going to put their trust in created things, in, in these other nations. There's no comparison between trusting God and trusting a nation like Egypt. Verse 7 says, Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Verse 9 calls them rebellious, lying children, right? They don't want to hear what God has to say. They prefer lies that sound good. 30.10 says, who, who say to the seers, do not see. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. No, instead, speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Sometimes we don't really want to hear what is true. We prefer a lie that sounds good, that, that goes down smooth, and, and will continue to let us live the way we want to live. Paul uh, writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.3, he says that there, there's a time coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but they'll have these itching ears and they'll accumulate for themselves teachers that will suit their own passions, and they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. If you want, you can find a teacher that will say what you want them to say so that you can live the way you want to live. We all battle uh, just wanting to hear what we want to hear. Uh, today, there's, there's a phrase that, that we use to justify it's my truth. Truly one of the dumbest phrases ever uttered. Uh, there's a problem when, when your truth clashes with someone else, else's truth, right? Someone's not true, at least one of you. You, you can believe that there's no absolute truth, but, but God, God doesn't believe that. His word doesn't teach that. Trying to ignore God's word will never benefit you. Isaiah tells them that despising God's word is sin, and they will be disciplined for it. And repeatedly, as you read about Israel, you think, man, this is not going well. They keep rebelling. 
Like, when will God just say, enough, forget it? And yet God continues to call his people to turn to him. 3015, for thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust uh, shall be your strength. Just return to God. Rest in him. Stop running. Stop trusting in your ways or somebody else's ways. Turn to him. Trust in him. Be saved. You've got to be tired of running, Israel. Rest in the Lord. It goes on to say, but you were unwilling. And you said, no, we will flee upon horses. Therefore, you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. Verse 18, therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore, he exalts himself to show you mercy. What an interesting phrase that we don't have time to get into. He exalts himself to show you mercy. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Verse 19, for a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he will answer you. And though the Lord will give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, Then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You'll scatter them as unclean things. You'll say to them, be gone. Why do we turn? Why do I turn to anything but God? How do I fool myself into thinking that sin will give me what I want? Right, right, that this, this thing, this plan, this momentary pleasure, whatever it is, that this is really what I need when I know who God is. Why do I put my trust in created things rather than the creator? Maybe, maybe you've noticed as you've been reading through Isaiah how great his love is for his people. Like we just read, he's waiting to be gracious. It says he's, he's ready to answer their cry. Even when he has to discipline them, he isn't hiding himself. Israel is convinced, though, that, that they, needed, they needed flesh to help them. 31.1 says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel, or consult the Lord. Verse 3, the Egyptians are man and not God. Their horses are flesh, not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they all will perish together. It doesn't make any sense to put our trust in flesh and not in God, but so quickly I turn to what I can see, to what I can touch. We seem to have amnesia. We forget what the Lord has done. 31.4, for, uh, for thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill like birds hovering. So the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. 
He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. And this word spare is really interesting. So the word for Passover comes from the, the, the same word. Um, the, the Passover, you might remember, um, occurred just before the Exodus, or it's, it's part of the Exodus. God told his people, slaughter a lamb, right? Paint uh, blood on the doorpost that, that will mark your house. Um, those who painted on the doorpost with the blood of the lamb, they would be spared. The, the homes marked by the blood of the lamb would be passed over. Death would not come to their home that night. Um, but the, the way we understand the word Passover uh, is, is skewed, right? We think of it as like, okay, God sees that house that, that has the blood on it, so they just kind of whoop, passes over it, right? Um, but, but this word... Um, it, it, uh, it's used just four or maybe five times as, as a verb. One's here in, in Isaiah, uh, and, and then one time, one other time is uh, in uh, Exodus 12, 23. Actually, the rest of the times it's in Exodus, but I want to read this to you. Exodus 12, 23. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door, and then listen to this description, and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. Okay, uh, I, I read this from a professor at Multnomah, Matt uh, Q gave this to me, Carl Kutz, uh, brilliant, brilliant Hebrew scholar. Uh, so so he, he's, he's helping us see here that the passing over isn't, a, isn't a, like just the skipping over, but, but God, he, he sees that blood on the doorpost and he, he's standing in, in the doorway. He's defending that house. He's defending the people that trusted in the blood. I, I already loved the Passover story, um, but, but understanding uh, that image there of how God defends us, how he protects us, it's, it's amazing. Right? Why wouldn't I want to tell people about this God, the God that would do that for them, even though we reject him over and over again, even, even though he has to continuously, continuously call us back to himself. So here in Isaiah, God's saying, I will be your defender. I will be your rescuer. I will deliver you. And I hope that in that, that we understand how personal God is. He isn't far off. He isn't this uncaring uh, spiritual being. No, instead, he's one who, who sent his one and only son to stand and, and deliver you. Jesus takes our place on the cross. He sheds his own blood. He calls you to trust in that blood, right? Because he, he took on the wrath of God in your place to rescue you. If, if, you, if you'll just trust in him, right? he stands in your place. He, he's your defender. So the call is to repent, Right, turn to the God who actually loves you, the God who's fighting for you. 31.6, turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day, everyone shall cast away his idols of silver, his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. That's, that's the call. It's to turn to him. There's still two chapters left in, in, in our section. We Obviously, we do not have time to go through them, but, but this, this is where uh, we see the, the alternate solution, the, the good solution, right? The, the, the good solution to the problem of trying to navigate this life in this, this, this sin-filled world. You don't have to look to the world. 
The solution is to look to the king revealed by God, the promised king. So I'm going to read through portions of these two chapters. I'm, I'm going to give almost no commentary at all. 32.1. And if it's, if it's more helpful, you can close your eyes, or, or if you want, you can follow along with me. I'll call out the verses we're in. 32.1. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed. The ears of those who give or who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know. The tongue of the stammers will hasten to speak distinctly. 32.15. Until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field. And the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness. Righteousness uh, will abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace. The result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. My people will abide in peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. 33.2, O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. Verse 5, the Lord is exalted for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. And he will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Verse 14, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. Verse 16, he will dwell in the heights. His place of defense will be, a fortress, will be the fortress of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Verse 20, behold Zion the city of your appointed feast. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Will you look to the king? Will you trust the king to defend you and deliver you? Will you trust this king and, and forsake all impostors to his throne? Will you follow him in obedience? Will you wait for the Lord? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and, and God, we are uh, we're shocked to see how you treat sinful, rebellious people, how, how you work to save us. Jesus, I, I pray that we would turn to you in, in any of the ways that we are running from you, whether it's a full-on sprint or, 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 
or if we just here and there take little jaunts away from you, Lord, I pray that you'd make it so clear to us that we're running after death. Jesus, we thank you that you came, that you lived the perfect, sinless life that we were supposed to live, but we're totally incapable of. We thank you that you died the death that we deserve to die, that you rose on the third day, that you ascended to be with the Father, that if we trust in you, we have life in you. And as hard as, as, as life is right now, God, we look forward to a day. We look forward to Zion, to dwelling with you. We look forward to the, the feast that will be. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.